All right. Good morning, Mercy Hill Church. Grab a Bible, turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 21. And while you're turning there, let me just say this great, great to be with you today. Great to get to gather together to worship. Last uh, Sunday or Saturday, rather, we had storms and 50 mile per hour winds and we showed up and there was no power here. And so we, uh, if we missed you last week or if you came, we apologize. Um, but we're so grateful to be together today. And I want to invite you, if, if you're a guest here or if you've been coming here for a while and you are not part of a missional community, I want to invite you to join one or go and visit one. You can find out information on our website about missional communities. You can come and talk with me. Um, it's a great time as we're rolling into the summer. A lot of our missional communities are spending more time hanging out. So there's small groups of what we, we call them spiritual families. And each of these small groups are on mission together. So they have a common mission that they're sharing. And uh, Andrew and Ashley's group, they're adding some people just this next month. And their common mission is our youth, those who are in our youth group and those who are outside of the youth. And um, we'll just love to share more about that with you if you need to know more about missional communities. We believe that that structure for disciple making is as important as our gathering and that we need to be in relationship together. So uh, today we look back at 1 Samuel and we're in this story studying the life of David. And the story that we have today is so very interesting Today I've entitled this message, David and Fear. And we all struggle with fear in different ways. I can remember when I was four or five years old, probably four, I was taking swimming lessons for the first time in my small town in Alabama. And we're there in, in the city pool where uh, all my little friends are around and I'm holding on to the side or sitting on the side crying. I'm that kid over on the edge, just kind of snibbling and shaking and just falling apart. And that's okay. It's okay if that happens for five or 10 minutes. It happened for five days. And my mom and dad got to a point where they were like, if, if you would like, just, if you can go a whole day without crying at swimming lessons, they were trying to bribe me. They were like, we'll take you to, to Walmart. We'll buy you a gift, whatever you want. If you can just go one day without crying. And I was like, okay. And didn't work. Didn't work. So I don't know what it was about swimming. Today, I love it. I'm the first one in, oftentimes the last one out. But at that point in time in my life, I was fearful. Uh, today, or rather in the workbook, The Voice of the Heart, Jeff Schulte writes this about fear. Fear is a God-given gift for us to use for our own benefit. Fear brings us strength. It is the feeling that allows us to experience risk, trust, dependency, collaboration, and ultimately wisdom because it helps us realize our need for help. We all experience fear in different ways in our lives. I mean, I can easily tell about this four-year-old experience today because I overcame it. It's easy for me to look back and, and make fun of myself, and I'm not ashamed at all because I love to swim now. 
And so it's easy for us to look back at some fears, but there are other fears in our lives that don't so easily go away. For instance, fears that I have about my kids or fears that I have about finances, particularly church finances, because I can't control what you guys give. Uh, Fears that I have about my own leadership or what if someone disagrees with me? Like we all experience fear, but don't worry. I'm not going to ask you to turn to the person beside you and share your current greatest fear with them because here's here's what would be interesting about that. We could stay here all day sharing our fears with one another. There are enough fears just inside this little room to take up the rest of our day. But here's one thing I know to be true. If I did say, turn to your neighbor and share your greatest fear, it might not seem like that big a deal to your neighbor because our fears are connected to our stories. And sometimes our fears are irrational, but we all struggle with fear. They don't go away. One thing is for certain, we will all face fear for the rest of our lives. And we actually get to a good point when we realize that we will face fear for the rest of our lives and we kind of acknowledge that. It's not a feeling that goes away. We don't grow out of it. And here's the deal. Unfortunately, ignoring our fears, when we do that, it often causes us to go off the rails into full-blown anxiety. And that is exactly what we're going to see in David's story today. Today we're going to see how David handled his fear. Or maybe a better way to say that would be how his fear handled him. It gets pretty ugly in this story. It's fascinating. But thankfully, that's not the end of the story. Because when we wrap this story up, we're going to glance at Psalms 34 and Psalms 56. And we're going to see that David had clarity and insight when he looked back on this story. And when he began to process it, not just in light of his fears, but in light of of God's mercy and grace in his life. Today we'll discover that fear is not bad. It's essential, in fact, to our faith. We'll see that fear is an opportunity in which God is inviting us to trust him. Fear in our life is an invitation from God to trust him. And fear is, Here's the big idea. Fear is not the absence of faith, but the confession that results in the gift of faith. Fear is not the absence of faith, but the confession that results in the gift of faith. We're going to see that in David's life. Let's look at his story for just a moment in verse 1. Now, if you remember, just to catch you up on this story David has been meeting all kinds of success. I mean, if you remember, David came seemingly from nowhere to kill Goliath, and instantly he attains hero status. Uh, With the women in Israel, they're singing songs like, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his ten thousands. And David has led the army of Saul into battle, 
He's been successful. He's married Saul's daughter, Michael. He had to kill 200 Philistines in order to earn the bride price for Michael. He's done that. He is loved by everyone in Israel except for King Saul. And now he is forced to flee from the king as King Saul approaches him in a jealous rage and Saul has attempted to murder him multiple times. Now we pick up with a story there, but there's one important thing. As you look at David's fear and think about it, take note of the fact that Jonathan, his best friend, has been forced to abandon him. They've gone their separate ways, and David is feeling about as alone as a person can feel at this point in his life. And one thing that, that I think about, even in my own life, is how often when I am alone, how often my fears become exaggerated. And it doesn't take that long. Sometimes it can just be a short 24-hour period that if I am alone for too long, my fears become exaggerated. And I begin to look at things in an unrealistic manner. My feelings are so much more than they really should be. But in this situation, I don't think David is exaggerating his fear. Because Saul is determined to murder him. And Saul has all the resources of the army of Israel. And he's coming after David. And if you will remember, earlier David had run to Ramah, to the prophet Samuel. But Saul even found him there. And so now David is on the run. He leaves with little more than his shirt on his back. And he has run two miles to Nob to a compound where the priests live. And we pick up in verse 1. Follow along with me as I read. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech, the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech, the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything in the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I've made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Ahimelech's response in this moment doesn't help David. David shows up in fear for his life. I don't know if you've ever had one of those moments where um, you're fearful. Maybe you have an accident. Maybe you've, somebody's punched you in the face or you've, you've, you've hit your face or you've, you know, you're hurt and you can't see how bad it is and you turn to someone and you say, how bad is it? Instead of reassuring you and saying, oh, it's going to be okay. It's not that bad. Instead, they go, oh, my God, this is terrible. And you go into a full-blown panic. That's what Ahimelech does here. David is running for his life. He shows up, and Ahimelech sees him and says, oh, my goodness. He, he begins to tremble. Why are you, the great David, here alone? Where's your entourage? And he's, he's, Ahimelech meets him in fear. More than likely, word has already spread that David is on the run and that all the land of Israel is to be on the lookout for him because Saul, he's at the top of Saul's hit list. And so Ahimelech meets him in this circumstance and pick back up with a story in verse 3. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread if the young men have kept themselves from women. 
And David answered the priest, Truly, women have been kept from us always. When I go on an expedition, the vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. The text doesn't seem to be recommending David's conduct. It's simply repeating it. But in this circumstance, keep in mind, David is hanging on life's edge. In this moment, he is desperate. And every Sabbath, there would be 12 loaves of bread that were described or called the bread of the presence. And it was piled on the table in the tabernacle on the north side of the holy place. That bread, it served as as a quiet presence, if you will, to remind the people of Israel that God has sustained his people and that God supplies for their needs. And ordinarily, the bread would just be used for the priest. They were the only ones that could eat of it. But David is desperate for supplies. And so he, God provides for David in his mercy. It's a reminder to each one of us who, as we struggle in our fear, it's a reminder that God does provide. Each of us, no matter what we're facing today, in our fear, you had breakfast this morning. If you didn't have breakfast, we had snacks here. Like we have eaten today. God provides. And it's when we forget God's faithfulness that we fall into sin and that we try to take control of our lives. And that's exactly what David is doing in this story. Look at verse 7 with me. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg, the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I've brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it's here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like it. Give it to me. Is anybody else smelling something a little fishy here in this story? Like, David shows up, and all the details aren't quite adding up in his story. I mean, in fact, David's a terrible liar, it seems. David reminds me of the guy who shows up knocking on my door at 9 o'clock at night, selling uh, a security service. Hey, I'm, I'm here to sell you a security system. No uniform, no clipboard. If you live in Midtown, you know you've had this experience. Like 9 o'clock at night, yeah, no, open your door. I want to talk to you about my security system I'm going to sell you. And I'm thinking, you get off my porch, I'm going to show you my security system. You guys know, like, like story's not adding up here. Like a plumber that shows up at your house and he's like, can I borrow a pipe wrench? Really? Like, are you really a plumber? And David shows up here. And, sorry, Jeff. It's just plumbers somehow easy to pick on. So David shows up here, and it's not all adding up. Literally, he has nothing but the shirt on his back. But the sword that he took from Goliath, 
and chopped his head off with has been placed in the tabernacle. Remember that? And it was placed in the tabernacle as a reminder, not of David's victory, but of God's victory. But unfortunately, if we look at what goes on here, when it's brought up to David, when he's reminded of it, instead of this object causing David to remember God's faithfulness, instead, what's, what's David's reply? It's, he replies in fear. He seems to put his trust not in the Lord, and not, but to put his trust in that sword. He says, yeah, 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 give it to me. There's none like it. David, like most of us in times of fear, instead of seeing fear as an invitation to trust God, so oftentimes we double down and we trust in ourselves. When we face fear, we, trying harder, we think will get us through, but the truth is that trying harder will only push us to anxiety. And there's a difference between fear and anxiety. Fear is healthy. Fear is good for us. Fear is the thing that tells us to stop. Don't run out in the road in front of that car. But anxiety causes us to to flee or to freeze or to go into flight mode. When we ignore healthy fears and don't allow them to serve as invitations to feel our feelings and to cause us to turn to God, In those moments, we push our mental health to a point that causes anxiety to boil up in our bodies. Jeff Schulte has said this, If we as emotional and spiritual creatures mistake anxiety for genuine healthy fear, we are set up to become worriers, stressed, and controlling Anxiety is the physical expression of unacknowledged or unsurrendered fear. Anxiety sets us up to try to attempt to control life, to minimize the experience of fear. Anxiety puts us in bondage, whereas fear sets us free to ask for help and to not be alone. David is attempting to take control of his life. And in the middle of his fear, instead of turning to God, he turns to himself with great anxiety and he flees. He goes into flight mode. And this is where the story just, it just becomes incredible. I mean, as I read this story, I'm reminded once again, how has no one made a modern day movie of, of David? Like, look, pick back up in verse 10. David flees. And David rose and he fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad? Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? 
I mean, this is where the story takes an unbelievable turn. This is the moment when if you're watching a movie and you're watching the main character, that you say out loud, no, no, David, don't do it. Don't, don't do it. What are you thinking? Because he goes to Gath of all the places to go. Like that's what fear does to us. When we don't learn to embrace our feelings and turn to God in trust, turn to God in order that God would give us the ability to walk in the power of faith. In those moments, if we don't see fear as an invitation to trust God, we will attempt to fight our fear alone, to take control. And that's what David's doing here. This is the best plan David can come up with on his own. He's in straight, full-blown anxiety. He's fleeing. And this is, this is what he comes up with. One of my mentors oftentimes says, whatever we don't own will own us. Or whatever we don't own will control us. And so you say, oh, I had a bad family experience. It's no big deal. I'm over it. Just kind of sweep it under the carpet. No, whatever we don't own will own us. And David does not own his fear. He does not see it as an invitation from the Lord to go to God and trust God. But instead he says, I can do this. I can take it on. And you see in David's life, this is the first time in which we've seen the danger of success. And it's true for each and every one of us. One of the greatest dangers in our lives is not when we experience failure. The greatest point of struggle in our lives is when we are faced with success and you see it in churches and you see it in for-profit organizations constantly because when we begin to meet some success we begin to say look at me trust in me I don't I no longer need others I'm a gift to them I can handle this and we don't go to the Lord We don't trust. And so we see that in David's life. In this moment, David experiencing full-blown anxiety, he does the unthinkable. He flees to the very enemy that he has struck down. Of all the places that he could go, he goes to Gath. If you remember, that's Goliath's hometown. He shows back up. He's for, has he forgotten the 200 Philistines that he killed and that he offered to Saul as the bride price for Michael? Has he forgotten that? And of all things, the audacity, he comes strolling into Gath, Goliath's hometown, with Goliath's sword. Like, what could David possibly be thinking? Clearly, he's gone mad. Whenever we leave God in a life of faith and take control of our lives, turning our back on God, madness always follows. And I don't know, maybe, maybe David's not really mad here. Maybe he has some big plan, but it's not working out for him. It's not working out for him because whenever we turn away from God and we say, I will follow my own way, madness always follows. I've talked with so many people over the years in counseling situations. And so oftentimes when they've turned away from God, they'll begin the conversation like this. Brad, I know this is going to be hard for you to believe, but and I, it's not hard for me to believe. In fact, there's almost nothing that would surprise me anymore because when we turn our backs on God, we experience madness when we turn to our own lives. 
Roger Ellsworth says it well in his, in his work, The Shepherd King. He says, The man who stood calmly before Goliath because he was possessed with faith now acts like a maniac because he is possessed with fear. You know, I don't know if, if David's plan was, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sneak back in undetected, try to hide in the very last place where King Saul would look for me. But whatever his plan was, if he said, I'm going to hide, I'm going to live in secret, it didn't work. David had underestimated himself. He had underestimated, he didn't give himself credit for how he would be recognized instantly, and he was. But we see God's gracious hand of mercy protecting David in this story. Because it ends really well for David. You know, add Academy Award for Best Actor to his list of accomplishments. Because David comes up with this crazy plan. I'm going to act like a maniac. And in fear of King Achish, he, he fakes madness, which likely wasn't that far from his current state of mental health. And so with spit running down his beard, he's released from this enemy king. King Achish, there was a superstition in this day that uh, most people considered this ancient superstition that harming lunatics would bring them bad luck. And King Achish, he, he and we're, I mean, we're kind of like that today. We're like, hey, you know, let's have mercy. This person is not in their right mind. And King Achish says, get this crazy guy out of here. I've got enough crazy people around me. Now, this story is really interesting. In some ways, there, it would seem that there's very little that we can learn from it. But thankfully, that's not the end of the story. You know, sometimes it's, it's only in looking back over our sin, not in the moment, but in processing the past, that we see more clearly. We see more clearly our stupidity. We see more clearly God's gracious, faithful, beautiful presence rescuing us. And David writes about that with, with great clarity. In Psalm 34 and Psalm 56, as he reflects on his time with the enemy. Psalm 56 is, is a song that David has written where he's actually remembering the time the Philistines seized him at Gath and recording God's deliverance and faithfulness. Listen to verses 1 through 4 of Psalm 56. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? That's a very different David than the David that we've experienced in Psalm, in 1 Samuel 21. How did David get here? How did David get to this place of, of trusting God again? Turning away from trusting in himself, but trusting in the Lord. Look with me at verses 8 through 11. David writes, You've kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? When my enemies will turn back in the day when I call, this I know, that God is for me. In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. 
what can man do to me? David comes to understand that the Lord has been with him all along. God is with us even in our wanderings and in our tossing about. God is with us in our sleepless nights, in our missteps. Even when we're lost, He is with us. And He doesn't abandon us. But instead, He walks with us through our suffering like a parent watching their child in pain. God grieves with us. And He is so aware emotionally of what we're facing in our lives, it's as if he's recording the number of our tears and storing them in his bottle. That's what David is, is describing of God's awareness of his feelings. David has come to understand, he says it in verse 9, that God is for him, even in the midst of his stupidity and even in the midst of his sin. God is for you, even in the midst of your fear. So don't run from him. He hasn't abandoned you. He hasn't turned his back on you. He hasn't rewarded you with what you deserve. But he shows us grace and mercy despite our failure, just like he showed David. Now, when we face anxiety in our lives, if we as emotional and spiritual creatures mistake anxiety for genuine healthy fear, we are set up to become worriers, to become stressed, and to become controlling. Anxiety is the physical expression of unacknowledged or unsurrendered fear. Anxiety sets us up to try to attempt to control our lives, to, to minimize the experience. Anxiety puts us in bondage, whereas fear sets us free to ask for help to realize that we don't have to be alone. And I think when we, when we, it's easy for me to say, it's easy for me to say when we face fear, it's God's invitation. It's an opportunity to turn to him and to trust him that he will give us faith through his power to be able to believe. It's easy for me to say that. It's also easy for me to say that, that anxiety, when we freeze or when we go into flight mode or when we are fearful that it's easy for me to say that that's just unsurrendered fear. But what does that look like in our lives? How do we model that? And I don't think there's anyone who modeled it better than Jesus. If you think about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, just before Easter, we, we taught a series. We called it the cup, the cross, and the crown. And if you remember Jesus facing the cup, God's wrath being poured out on him in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus modeled this so well. The scriptures say he was sorrowful to the point of death. I don't think there's anyone who faced struggle and fear and suffering more than Jesus. Say, so how can you say that? He took on the sins of the world on his shoulders. He died for your sin and for mine. All he had never ever known for all of eternity was relationship and fellowship and community with the Father. And he took on the wrath of God. He took on our suffering 
on our behalf. And in that moment, I believe that he struggled to the point of being afraid in his loneliness. And he felt all of those feelings to the point that he said, I struggle to the point of death. And in that, it led him to faith. It led him to cry out to his father for help. It led him to be able to say, not my will, but your will be done. And that's exactly what God wants from us. God doesn't reprimand us in our fear. He doesn't condemn us. But just like a child who is scared, God feels compassion for us. And he comforts us in our fear with his presence. God invites us to join him in our fear, to trust him so that he can deliver us from our fears. God invites us to take refuge in him, that we would learn what it means to actually fear the Lord, to respect him, to live for him. Because when we learn to fear the one who has power over life and death, we come to discover that there's literally nothing to fear. Now look at Psalm 34. I just want to end on this psalm and on this song that David has written. I want to close with this. Follow along in verses 1 through 10. David says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. He wrote this reflecting on the time in which he was in front of King Achish when he changed his behavior, when he acted like a madman. And in reflecting on God's goodness, he writes this, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. David reflects on his anxiety, his madness before the king, and he reveals the beautiful results of God's faithfulness when we turn to him. See, fear is an invitation to take refuge in God and to taste God's goodness. David ends Psalm 34 with verse 22. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. And verse 22 points us to the greater David, to King Jesus. Have you taken refuge in him? Verse 22 says, none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. You say, how about those who have cancer? How about those who are fighting hard 
And it seems as if they don't win the fight. David says, none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. David is pointing us to the greater David, King Jesus. The one who even in this life, though we face trouble, we can take heart because he has overcome the world. David is pointing us to Jesus in whom, if we fear, we will not be afraid. Put your hope in him. I love verse 5. You say, this sounds like a lot of work, Brad. You talked a lot about feelings today. Some of the guys here are like, can't you just give us something to do? Like, feelings? Really? We got to talk about our feelings? And this is a lot of work. It's a lot of work to engage in our feelings and actually feel them. But Jesus modeled it better than anyone. But I can promise you that the results are worth it. Because look at the way in which David describes those who put their trust in the Lord. Look at verse 5. Those who look to Him are radiant and their faces will never be ashamed. David is using the kind of language that we use on our wedding day. Guys, when the groom stands at the front, and I've done a few weddings, and it's always the same. When the groom stands at the front, and those doors open up, and the bride enters in, and you see that look that is on her face, and she is radiant. And I've seen big old, strong, muscly, hard guys just break and begin to crumble. And the more they try not to, the more I've seen them start to shake. The tears just start to come because they are seeing their bride in all her beauty. And they are overcome. And Jesus is saying, even more beautiful, even more radiant. If you will feel your feelings when you face fear, if you will take it as an invitation to put your trust in the Lord, you will not be ashamed. You will live a life with a radiant face. You will live like a bride on her wedding day, not just in this life, but both now and throughout all of eternity. you pray with me? Father, Thank you that you have given us one that we can put our trust in. His name is Jesus, and we will not be shaken. Jesus, thank you for your work on the cross. God, thank you that you raised Jesus from the dead and that he has all the power that's needed in order to overcome this life, in order to face all the fears that we have in our lives. God, we hear all of this. But God, would you give us humility of heart to surrender our lives to you, to trust you, to be willing to say in the midst of our fear, God, I invite you to join me. God, I want to fear you, the only one who's worth fearing. Would you give me power by your faith to live in a way that glorifies you, even in the midst of my fears? God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he has overcome sin, that he has overcome death, that he has overcome the world. In his name we pray, amen.